Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the ninth episode of season 11. I'm going to apologise for my voice if it sounds a little bit raspier than normal. I'm sort of in the midst of a chesty, coffee, coldy kind of thing. Thank you, daughter. So yeah, if you don't fall asleep to this episode and you normally do, I can only offer my sincerest apologies. Before we get into it, let's break the ice as always. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know, Glasgow-based chef Ali Ahmed Aslam supposedly invented the chicken tikka masala curry dish. In the 1970s, a customer at Mr Ali's Shish Mahal restaurant asked if there was a way of making his chicken tikka less dry. His solution was to add a creamy tomato sauce, with some versions of the story claiming he used a can of tomato soup. He didn't know it at the time, but Britain's favourite curry had just been born. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. Some people live more in 20 years than others do in 80. It's not the time that matters, it's the person. That was said by David Tennant. I feel like I've said that before on this show. Apologies if I have. I don't keep track of my quotes. I probably should, really. Listener Margaret requested this case via the contact form at britishmurders.com. We're in the town of Kilmarnock this week, or Killy as it's known locally, which is located in the county of East Ayrshire in southwestern Scotland. For reference, the town is 24 miles southwest of Glasgow, 65 miles west and slightly south of Edinburgh, and 422 miles north and slightly west of London. Here are five quick-fire facts about Kilmarnock. Number one, Kilmarnock is often referred to as the crossroads of Ayrshire due to its central location within the region. Number two, in the 19th century, Kilmarnock became renowned for its thriving industries, including textiles, coal mining and manufacturing. Those industries played a crucial role in shaping the growth and development of the town. Number three, the Burns Monument Centre in Kilmarnock is a tribute to Scottish poet Rabbi Burns. The first published edition of Burns' work was called Poems, chiefly in the Scottish dialect, 
commonly known as the Kilmarnock edition. They were first printed and issued by John Wilson of Kilmarnock on July 31st, 1786. Number four, the Johnny Walker brand of scotch was established in Kilmarnock in 1820 and was produced and bottled there until 2012, 192 years. The decision to close all operations in Kilmarnock was understandably met with a huge backlash from the locals as well as some Scottish politicians. And finally, number five, Kilmarnock FC are the oldest professional football team in Scotland. The oldest association football team is technically Queen's Park FC, but they were officially an amateur club until 2019. The approximate population of Kilmarnock, according to the 2011 census, is 46,159. Our story this week revolves around a one-sided family feud in which the common denominator is the youngest of two children to husband and wife William and Catherine Kelly. As I write this, I've only just cottoned on to the fact that both children were named after their parents. The eldest child was called Catherine and the youngest was called William. Going forward, I'll be referring to William Jr. as simply Kelly and I'll try my best not to confuse you as the story progresses. I'll keep calling Catherine, Catherine, but one way I'm going to achieve the sort of lack of confusion, I guess, is by calling Catherine Sr., the person featured in this episode's title, Cathy, as that was how she was affectionately known. Born in roughly 1946, Cathy was a remarkable individual whose life revolved around her family and taking in the simple things from which she took great joy. She was 71 years old during the events of this story and lived on Kilmouse Road in Kilmarnock with Kelly in a semi-detached house near the Onthank Estate. If that area sounds familiar, it's likely because you remember a BAFTA award-winning five-episode documentary series called The Scheme that aired between 2010 and 2011. Produced by BBC Scotland, the series followed the lives of six families in the Onthank and Knockinlaw housing schemes. As recently as 2020, the area had been labelled by residents as an extremely problematic area whose maintenance had been neglected by East Ayrshire Council. Some far harsher words were uttered in the article I read, but seeing as I've never been to the place, I don't want to needlessly slag it off. The point I'm getting at is that Cathy and her family lived in an area that provided a unique backdrop to their daily lives. If you think Cathy relished her role as a mummer too, then I can't begin to describe how ecstatic she was when she became a grandma. Family meant so much to her. She dearly cherished those familial bonds. Cathy's professional career reflected her strong work ethic. Starting her employment journey as a worker in a shoe factory, she soon transitioned into the healthcare sector, becoming a nursing home carer in the process. Her commitment to her field was exemplified by her attainment of a Higher National Certificate, or HNC, in social care. Such a qualification is designed to provide people with the practical skills and theoretical knowledge that employers expect. HNCs are designed to level 7 of the Scottish Credit and Qualifications Framework and they're a proper professional development award. Achieving such a feat shows just how dedicated Cathy was to her field and how she strove to further her development and education to better help those in need until she finally retired aged 68. Outside of work, Cathy was a familiar sight in her community. She was often seen out walking Poppy, her beloved West Highland Terrier. 
As well as providing a routine and much-needed kinship after the passing of William Sr. in February 2015, Poppy also got Cathy exercising by way of going on walks. It's also the case that dog walkers have frequent interactions with fellow dog walkers when out and about, so Poppy also opened the door to Cathy reintegrating herself back into the local community after initially struggling once she became a widow. The other thing about Cathy is that despite her being in her early 70s, she was mentally sharp as a razor. A keen puzzle solver, Cathy was a crossword enthusiast. The piles of magazines in her home evidenced her knack for completing those tricky little word puzzles, and she would work through them with impressive speed, showcasing her mental acumen. Living with Cathy was her son and his partner Eleanor Banks, with whom Cathy had a fairly close and healthy relationship. The two women would regularly head into town together to browse the shops and maybe stop off for a hot drink and something to eat. Those outings reflected the camaraderie she shared with family members and the importance she placed on building connections beyond her immediate circle. If we go back briefly to the death of Cathy's husband, William Sr., she understandably struggled to adapt her life as a widow. We all grieve differently and have various outlets that we turn to when we lose someone close to us. Sometimes it's a positive outlet, but often it's not. Kathy's way of grieving was to start consuming alcohol in an attempt to numb the emotional pain she felt daily. That ultimately led to a decline in her physical and mental health, something which her son took exception to. Kelly was in the habit of shouting abuse at his mum whenever he deemed it necessary. He'd insult Kathy by calling her an old alky bastard whenever he caught her drinking, but regardless, she still lovingly referred to her youngest child as my boy. Let's look a bit deeper now into the personality and character of Kelly. Rather than following in Kathy's footsteps, as Catherine had by becoming a deputy charge nurse at Cross House Hospital near Kilmarnock, Kelly made a living as an offshore worker. 41 years old at the time of this story's events, he seemed to resent the fact that he lived at home with his mum. His sister has gone on record stating that in 2012, Kelly got into a heated argument with her, during which he launched a pack of diazepam, aka Valium, at her. As he did so, he exclaimed, This is what I need to get through living with them. He was referring to his living situation with both his parents. Clearly, there was some tension between Kelly and his mum and dad, but the precise and underlying nature of it is not really known. Eleanor has compared Kelly's relationship with Cathy as being not too dissimilar to Norman Bates's with his mum in the 1959 Robert Block novel Psycho. She said he was completely obsessed with his mum and not in a loving way. It sounds cliche, but Kelly reportedly loved his mum while absolutely hating her guts at the same time. When they argued, it supposedly felt like you were living in the Bates Motel. Speaking to a journalist, Eleanor said, He would say his life is being ruined by her. I used to ask him what the obsession was, but he would never tell me. The pair first began dating in either late 2014 or early 2015, and they remained together until after the events of this story. Eleanor was previously married and had five kids, I assume all of whom were with her husband, but he sadly took his own life in a tragic fire incident in 2014. As a lot of perpetrators you hear about on British Murders are, Kelly was, at first, an overwhelmingly nice guy. 
It appeared to Eleanor as though she had somehow met this charming and wonderful man with whom she could rebuild her future after such a devastating loss. Naturally, the Mr. Nice Guy routine didn't last, and before long, Eleanor was subjected to physical abuse, emotional abuse, taunting, and even death threats. With the compliments and chivalrous acts dropped, Kelly disgustingly mocked Eleanor's husband's death and would sometimes take that even further by threatening to kill her in the same way, by setting her on fire. In one particularly frightening incident, which saw Kelly rip one of Eleanor's dresses off her body and cut the straps off her shoes, he demanded she run away before he hurt her. Here's how Eleanor recalled the incident. He said, See how far you can run because you're going to burn to death like your man did. He'd placed a petrol can just outside the door in an attempt to prove how serious he was and had a lighter in his hand, which he kept flicking on and off, which only served to heighten Eleanor's already astronomical fear levels. During their two years together, Kelly even went as far as striking Eleanor with a hammer and a lamp on two separate occasions. The dynamic between Kelly and Kathy was primarily characterised by strained communication and emotionally charged verbal outbursts. Kelly would express his typically unjustified frustrations through loud and confrontational shouting matches which often left his mum in floods of tears. According to Catherine, he struggled to engage in constructive dialogue with anyone, not just his mum, opting instead for a more combative approach, especially when his emotions ran high. Tensions escalated in early 2016, it was either March or April, when Kelly became indescribably infuriated with Kathy when she decided to let someone in the house so they could get a better view of some pigeons in the back garden. That seems like such a mundane event to most of us, I'm sure, but for some reason it triggered such a strong negative reaction from Kelly that it led to yet another heated family discussion. By then, Kelly was growing increasingly frustrated at his mother's lack of comprehension regarding how he felt about her that he resorted to writing words of distaste on the walls of their shared home. What exactly he wrote, I can't say, but it's certainly a red flag and shows just how much stress living at home was causing him. When I say that, I'm not trying to justify what he did, because it's horrendous, but it's in situations like this where third-party intervention, had those signs been recognised, could have potentially helped save the life of a much-loved member of the community. Could Kelly have gone about making his feelings known to his mum in a better and clearer way? For sure, but as I said earlier, everyone processes things differently. Maybe opening up and discussing feelings wasn't something that went on in the Kelly household. We aren't privy to those sort of things, but it broke my heart when I read that Catherine hadn't spoken to her mum for going on nine months after falling out over something which seemed so trivial. Catherine recalled going to see her mum on around May 27th that year, a month or so after the pigeon incident, as she did so often back then. It was only after Catherine suggested to her mum that she might want to consider feeding Poppy a little bit earlier in the day that Kelly took exception and made his furious feelings known. Kathy appears to have taken her son's side, possibly for an easier life, seeing as he was hot-headed and lived with her, but the result was a complete lack of interaction with her eldest child and only daughter. Neither of them knew it at the time, but they would never speak to each other again, and Catherine would not see her mum alive after that. That could have changed after Kathy was rushed to hospital in December that year with a head injury, but Kelly swiftly put a stop to his sister coming to visit. 
He explained that Kathy was in hospital with a suspected bleed on the brain, later confirmed as being a brain hemorrhage, but that he'd informed the hospital staff to deny Catherine access to Kathy should she go against his wishes. Why he did that is up for debate, but the common consensus is that Kathy's brain injury was likely caused by one of several beatings Kelly inflicted upon his mum. He had a history of assaulting Kathy, but none of it would come to lie until his trial commenced. A month before the brain bleed incident, Kelly allegedly punched and kicked Kathy after first dragging her up the stairs in an attack so brutal that a charge of attempted murder would later be laid upon him. In January 2017, Kelly is alleged to have assaulted Kathy once more before throwing her into a cupboard. So that's three brutal incidents of violent assault against his own mum in the space of three months. The term escalation comes to mind, and just a month after the cupboard incident, it would culminate in murder. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Saturday, February 11th. That evening saw the gathering of Eleanor's family, along with Kelly and Kathy, to celebrate her son Gary's 21st birthday. Taking place in the village of Crosshouse, just a couple of miles west of Kilmouse Road, the party was being enjoyed by all who attended, with the exception of Kelly. As he did so often, he took exception to Kathy having a drink and seemingly enjoying herself. He believed she was too drunk and was embarrassing him so he ordered both her and Eleanor to get into the taxi he'd ordered so they could return home. The chain of events I'm about to describe is going to be incredibly difficult to hear. I also want to point out that this is what happened according to Eleanor, who went on to testify against Kelly at his murder trial. Arriving back home at around half eleven, Kelly is said to have viciously dragged his mum into the house by her arms after she supposedly fell while getting out of the taxi. Once inside the home, Kelly began beating up his mother as he had done so frequently in the previous months, using both his hands and feet to inflict a barbaric assault on defenceless Kathy. No doubt frozen with fear, Eleanor went on to explain how the phone rang and Kelly broke off from assaulting his mum to answer it. It may have been a cold call because Kelly supposedly answered it in a daft voice and put on a bizarre Indian-style accent to give the impression that he worked in an Indian restaurant. The call didn't last long, as you can imagine, and once it had concluded, he went right back to beating up his mum. Let's just think about that for a second. Kelly, in theory, had time to calm down and even walked away from the scene to answer the phone. He had the chance there and then to stop what he was doing. Walking away so often diffuses heated situations, doesn't it? But for whatever reason, it had no effect on Kelly that night. The assault culminated with Kelly rolling Kathy over so that she was face down, pouring petrol from a jerry can all over her and igniting it. Within minutes of their arrival home, the entire house was engulfed in flames, with the neighbours wondering what the hell was going on. Eleanor said, I was standing, screaming, You're going to kill your mum! and he was saying, die! The liquid smelled like petrol. He went down and he set fire at the bottom of her legs. She just went up like an inferno. I've never seen anything like it. In the blink of an eye, she was on fire. The emergency services were informed at around 11.40pm by the neighbours, with some of them even attempting to rescue the property's inhabitants. They attempted to pry open the front door as they knew that three people and a dog lived there. 
Even passing motorists stopped and did their best to help by either trying to rescue the people trapped inside or by calling the emergency services. Stephen Wiseman, a 20-year-old neighbour of Kathy and Kelly, said, Just before midnight I saw flames coming out the windows and people shouting, so I went out and saw it all. There were orange flames and thick black smoke coming out of the living room and, I think, a bedroom. The Scottish Fire and Rescue Service soon arrived and put out the blaze as quickly as they could. Eleanor appears to have been the first person to escape the inferno and was seen running out of the property with loud screams leaving her mouth. She was miraculously unharmed. Kelly had to be dragged out of the property by one heroic and brave neighbour and he was soon driven away by an ambulance to be treated at Cross House Hospital. Kelly had injuries to his legs, hands and face whilst the neighbour who saved his life was treated for minor smoke inhalation as were several other neighbours. Poppy, the West Highland Terrier, also survived the fire, but sadly, Kathy was pronounced dead at the scene. Dr Emma Kemp conducted Kathy's post-mortem and explained that she had suffered burns to 45% of her body. To put that into context, Kathy was so badly burned that firefighters at first struggled to identify her sex. The clothes she had on that weren't completely charred disintegrated when touched, and all of her hair had gone. Along with the burns, Kathy also displayed injuries including bruises, broken ribs and a cut on her tongue which was said to be consistent with being kicked and or punched repeatedly. The non-burn injuries were so severe that Dr Kemp didn't rule out the possibility that Kathy was dead before the fire was ignited, a conclusion reached after she found no soot in Kathy's windpipe. The official cause of death was classed as unascertained, which essentially means Dr. Kemp could not say for sure what had caused Kathy's death. When asked about the cause of death, Dr. Kemp said, A head injury, suffocation, or burns, or a combination of all three. Catherine was informed of her mum's death at 4am the following morning, and was also told that her brother had been taken to the hospital where she worked to be treated for his injuries. Before long, the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service and Police Scotland determined that the fire was deliberately set and they confirmed that they'd found two separate unconnected areas of fire in the living room and the hallway. Based on those findings, a murder inquiry was launched and forensic experts were sent into the home. Almost four weeks later, on March 7th, Kelly was arrested by Police Scotland and held in police custody, charged on suspicion of murder. The next day he appeared at Kilmarnock Sheriff Court and made no plea to charges of murder and attempted murder. During the same hearing, he was also informed he was being charged with assault to severe injury, permanent impairment and danger of life, and assault to severe injury and permanent disfigurement. The threatening and abusive behaviour he'd previously displayed towards Eleanor was also mentioned. The murder trial commenced that November at the High Court in Glasgow with the proceedings overseen by Judge Lady Stacey. With Kelly continuing to deny any wrongdoing, new evidence was brought to light which possibly offered a motive as to why he'd killed his mum. Just six months before the fire, Cathy had redone her will. Likely influenced by Kelly, she'd removed Catherine from it entirely and said that her entire estate was to go to Kelly in the event of her death. Catherine had no idea, by the way. She was only informed of the change when she was questioned during the trial. Another spanner in the works, which the defence attempted to use in mitigation, was that Cathy had also written that should anything happen to Kelly, her estate would then go to Eleanor, which essentially implicated her in the murder. 
defending herself, Eleanor said, I tried to talk Cathy out of changing her will many times. I tried to get her to see her daughter, who didn't deserve to be taken out of the will. She was her daughter and loved her. I tried many times to get her to see sense, but she was obviously brainwashed. Case defender Gordon Jackson said, If Kelly can't get the money for some reason, like he is convicted of murdering his mother, it all goes to Eleanor Banks. Case prosecutor Ashley Edwards doesn't appear to have entertained the outlandish theory. His argument was as follows. The evidence shows that the accused has brutally beaten his elderly mother while shouting die. It was also revealed that Kelly had told one of the nurses at Glasgow Royal Infirmary that he did what he had to because he was provoked. He was quoted as saying, she got what she deserved. When Kelly got up to give his version of events, he said that he'd set Cathy on fire by accident. He'd apparently spilt some petrol on his trousers and shoes whilst cleaning a part of his car in the garage. Heading inside the house, he claimed to have found Cathy seemingly passed out on the living room floor. Casually lighting a cigarette after kneeling down to check if she was okay, he said he saw a blue flash and the house just went up in flames. When cross-examined about a text message he'd sent in late 2016, which read, I'll give her two black eyes for Christmas, Kelly insisted it was just a joke. He said his mum meant everything to him. The compelling evidence led to the jury returning to the courtroom after just 90 minutes of deliberation. They unanimously found Kelly guilty of murder, even though they were given the chance to find him guilty of culpable homicide. As Kelly was led away from the dock, Judge Lady Stacey informed the court that she would defer his sentencing until January 2018 to obtain some background reports. In her closing statement, she said, I know that you said a few weeks after your mum's death that you did what you had to do and she deserved what she got. The jury found you guilty of murdering your mother. You assaulted her by pushing her and putting her to the floor before you poured petrol on her and set her alight. That is a horrific crime. You had shown her malice and ill will before that. She was a vulnerable, elderly person. Her health was poor. She had looked after you and brought you up. She was still prepared to cherish you as her son and excuse your behaviour to other people. Although she drank to excess and you were concerned, you were not constructive in your help. You did not help her get off the drink. You made her frightened and in the end, you killed her. On January 16th, Kelly was handed a life sentence with a minimum term of 23 years. In January 2023, it was revealed that Kelly had finally given up control of his mum's estate. In Scotland, whilst the conviction of a person for murder does prevent them from inheriting their victim's estate, there's currently no corresponding law precluding them from acting as an executor in relation to their victim's estate. Eleanor has also resigned as an executor, if you are wondering, with Cathy's estate having now been transferred to one of her grandchildren. And that was the story of the murder of Catherine Kelly. Thanks again, Margaret, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. This week's four new reviews are as follows. Tessa Smith left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Absolutely love this podcast. Currently number one on my list. Found this podcast courtesy of Scottish Murders. Shout out, Dawn. Stuart has a very easy listening voice, and I love to listen while out on my motorcycle or whilst crocheting currently listening to season seven can't wait to see what comes next keep up the good work pal kimberly left a five-star review on britishmurders.com 
It reads, I love this podcast. I find your voice very relaxing. I think your mini co-host introduction is so cute. Could I please suggest the murder case of Nikki Allen, who was only seven years old when murdered by Stockton resident David Boyd in 1997? I've added that case to my spreadsheet for you, Kimberly. Thank you. PB Slimman left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts UK. It reads, Love the podcast. I can't wait for a new episode every week. I love the way he delivers and episodes are approximately 30 to 40 minutes. Just enough. I'm not over keen on the interview in different people episodes, but love the rest of it. Keep up the good work. Finally, Who Wit left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts UK. It reads, I love the way Stu covers the cases. You are quick, witty and compassionate and I adore your accent and I appreciate that you explain some of the different vocabulary to us from the US. Keep up the good work. I'm so glad I stumbled upon your podcast. I often listen to it on my two-hour work commute. Thank you. Thank you, Tessa, Kimberley, PB Slimmon, and Who Wit for leaving those reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. Please consider heading to patreon.com slash britishmurders and signing up for a membership. If you choose my officer of the British Empire tier, you'll gain early access to all future episodes ad-free. You'll gain access to several bonus episodes, as well as my new podcast series, British Murders Weekly Journal. I also do Patreon-exclusive giveaways from time to time. Thank you, hello, and welcome to my newest Patreon members, Katie Uhl, Claire McRae, Count Truckula, and Courtney Holland. If you'd like to support the show on a one-off basis, just head to buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Thank you, Tony C. and Nicola Deering, who did just that. They bought me a beer each. Tony said... The best true crime podcast out there. I'm a Scot living in the South Island of New Zealand and enjoy these short, sharp episodes. Please can you cover more Scottish perpetrators? Keep up the good work and enjoy the beer. Ask and you shall receive, Tony. This episode, of course, featured a Scottish perp. And Nicola said, My favourite true crime podcast, so easy to follow with the succinct and well-constructed timeline you put together. Never tire of listening to you, Stu. Cheers both. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You will get the episode covered eventually and you'll also get a cheeky shout out just like Margaret did. And that does us for another episode. Almost at the end of season 11 now. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.